0: This is the Moira Pentecostal Church Podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. So I want you to come with me uh, today to uh, the book of Esther. The book of Esther, which is the 17th book in the Old Testament. Or if you work backwards from Psalms... Uh, Job, Esther, and uh, turn to Esther chapter 1. The story of Esther is one of those uh, stranger than fiction stories. You literally could not make it up. The best Hollywood scriptwriters have never written such an intriguing, gripping tale as this. There's so many undercurrents that are going on in this whole story. Massive egos are on display. There are long-festering racial hatreds that come to the fore. There are drunken parties <coughs> by the leading politicians of the day until things hasn't changed too much in all these years. And there's a megalomaniac king uh, who is cruel and capricious, and who makes decisions on a whim, uh, usually when he's drunk. Uh, The book of Esther is a a page-turner. I I defy you to start reading it and try to stop before it's finished. You, You just want to get to the end of it. It's that good. And in the middle of all of this here, there's this young, beautiful orphan, Jewess girl, Uh, called Esther. And she enters a worldwide beauty contest and wins it and became the wife of the king of Persia. See what I say? You couldn't make this up, but it actually literally happened. And not only that, but she went on then to save her people, the Jews, from a holocaust that was orchestrated by a rabid anti-Semite. And the book of Esther has a, the distinction of being the only book in the Bible where God's name is not mentioned in any of it. But as old Matthew Henry said, though God, though the name of God be not in it, the finger of God is directing many minute events for the bring about of his people's deliverance. The overarching theme in the book of Esther is providence, God's providence. Simply put, that means that God works behind the scenes of lives of people, working out his purposes for his glory and for their good. And God works his providence in all of our lives. And again, it's for his glory, but it's for our good. And so as we go through this, I want you to see today the providence of God, and let's take some encouragement and inspiration from it that God is also working behind the scenes of our lives. And it's easy to see that looking uh, back. It's a bit harder to see it sometimes looking now or looking ahead. But actually, this book encourages us. Of the 66 books in the Bible, only two are entitled with a woman's name, Esther and Ruth. And even though it's not my message today, I would encourage you and your private devotions, if you wish, to compare those two books uh, and see uh, what you can see from that. Uh, For example, one is a a Jewish woman living in a Gentile land. One is a Gentile woman living in a Jewish land. One is an orphan. One is a widow. One is penniless, living beside barley Fields. And one is super rich now, living in a palace of a king. And so there are some differences. And Ruth, as you know, went on to be the great-grandmother of King David. uh, And actually is mentioned in the very lineage of Christ in the Gospels. And that Esther goes on uh, to save uh, many, many of David's descendants because she saved them uh, from this Holocaust. And so... In a moment we're going to begin to read this amazing story of Esther, beginning in chapter one. And even though she herself is not mentioned in chapter one, but it is absolutely vital that we read this chapter because we need to get the background. We we need to set the scene. If we're going to see the providence of God in this book, then we need to know the context of which this book was written. The events here are set somewhere between the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. And Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, whenever you read those two books, you'll find that it largely is dealing with the Jews who come out of the Babylonian captivity, uh, liberated by the Persians, by the Medo-Persian Empire, and then haven't got the opportunity to go home to their homeland to rebuild the, the temple and the walls that are broken down of Jerusalem, then many of them did that. And so when you read Ezra and Nehemiah, that's who it's talking about. Those who came out of Babylon captivity, but didn't stay in Persia, but left to go and to live their lives in their homeland, in Israel. But the book of Esther deals with those who came out of the Babylonian captivity, but stayed in the kingdom of Persia, stayed there and assimilated into that society. And really had no desire to go back home. They were quite happy there. They were well treated. They were prospering. They were doing exceptionally well. And so they had settled. Like many Jews today who lives in America. He's not thinking of it going back home to Israel. Like many who is now living in Europe. Who are thinking of going back to Israel. Because of anti-Semitism in Europe. And if anti-Semitism rises its ugly head in America. In a big way. You can be sure it will draw them back uh, to their homeland and actually it's not my subject this morning but God is drawing his people from all over the world yeah. back to Israel and it's usually through uh, persecution and anti-Semitism and that's rising up big time around the world today and so that's where we are now the great Medo-Persian empire here in our story is ruled by a king called Ahasuerus or Xerxes XC Xe- R Axi S Xerxes. Uh, that's his official name. Now previously he had been ruled by Darius I, and before that, his grandfather, Cyrus. Actually, in Isaiah 45, there's a prophecy, but 100 or 200 years before Cyrus was even born, that he would be born, and it would be a great help to God's people, and actually he was, because he was one of the ones that helped to liberate them from the Babylonian captivity. And so also helped them in, in going back to build the, the temple in Jerusalem again and to rebuild the walls. Now, some believe that it was Ezra uh, who wrote this book, but we can't know for sure. Some believe it was Mordecai, but we just don't know. But what we do know that it was recorded in the chronicles or the records of the kingdom of the, Medo, the Medes and the Persians. And so there's a true history for this the Hasareus or Xerxes had a son Artaxerxes who ruled after him and it was Artaxerxes whom Nehemiah was the cupbearer to and uh, so these men had risen to great positions uh, with these kings and it was Artaxerxes that allowed Nehemiah to go back (laughs) and to help to build the broken down walls of Jerusalem. Anyway As I said, many Jews decided to stay after their captivity and assimilate into Persian society, and although they did that and were good citizens, many of them, of course, would hold to their Jewish roots and their Jewish traditions as much as they could. Now, they had no temple here. They had no priesthood. They couldn't make their sacrifices, their animal sacrifices, but there was customs and there was... Uh, habits and there was that ideas in, of Judaism was still with them and they held to that as much as they could Mordecai, a Jew he remained and ended up working in the courts of Ahasuerus and, and if I could put it this way he became like a civil servant uh, at the gates of the palace, that's where the, that's the place of, where decisions were made uh, particularly among leaders at that time And he was the one who raised up, as his own child, his little cousin, his little cousin, Hadassah. Hadassah was Esther's Hebrew name. Uh, Esther means she was called after a pagan goddess, a star. And so, and she was a star, actually, in this story. But he raised her up. Her mum and dad died. Uh, His uncle and aunt, he raised her up to be as his own. And uh, that's how she gets into this story here and by the way the the geographical area we're looking at in this story uh, present day would be Iran and Iraq Uh, up until the the Shah of Persia was deposed in 1979 by an Islamic revolution under Ayatollah Khomeini up until then that was a long lineage all the way back to what we're reading here so you're going back two and a half thousand years And so Iran then is is, is a massive nation, but that was part of the Persian Empire, ancient Persian Empire, and Iraq, which was only come into being in 1920, that was also part of it. And in fact, we believe, historians believe, that the Polish Shushan that we're going to read read about here was about 250 miles southwest of current-day Baghdad. And so oftentimes when you're reading the Old Testament, you're reading about the Middle East, and these countries and nations are still here today. And lots of the ancient enemies then of Israel are the, ancient, are the modern enemies today. that <laughs> still is going on. So let's then, with that background in mind, and it's important to take those few minutes to tell you that, let's begin to read here uh, from chapter 1. Now, it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. Ethiopia. So from North Africa to India to the Middle Eastern countries in between, this was a massive empire. This was a world superpower of its day. And in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, some of your Bible translations may say Susa, it means the same thing, which was in Susan, the citadel. Uh, The citadel was a a fortified palace, if you will, raised up on a plateau. Uh, And this city, uh, historians tell us, was seven miles in circumference. So this was a huge city. And he had this summer residence built here in the plateau for all to see. He had other places in other cities, not a residence, but this is the one uh, that's favored here. But in the third year, sorry, in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the province being before him. Then he showed the riches of his glory, of his glorious kingdom, and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. Here is the longest recorded party in history. Six months it lasted. And he invited all of his nobles and all of his high-ranking officials from all of his provinces from North Africa to India and everywhere in between. Now, whether they all came at once or whether they came uh, from time to time as uh, uh, suited, but there was this ongoing night and day party. Can you imagine that for six months on ending? And when... Uh, this, this historian tells us, by the way, that this was... Uh, a, a, a time uh, when there was wars with Greece. His father Darius uh, fought a couple of wars with Greece and was soundly beaten, come back with a bloody nose. But now this king, his son Ahasuerus, he wants to go against Greece himself again to take revenge. But he needs help to do that, so he's whining and dining all these. Officials from all of his provinces to try to soften them up and get them on board when they go to attack Greece. And so he wines and dines them in order to do that. And when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Chushan, the citadel, from great to small, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. And there were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple and silver rods and marble pillars. And the couches were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise and white and black marble. And they served drinks in golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other with royal wine in abundance. According to the generosity of the king, in accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory. For so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. Now, what is all that saying? That's saying at the end of the six months, they had one great big last mother of all parties for a week. And I I would surmise that everybody had been invited. Uh, And the wine was in abundance, and the food, you can imagine, was wonderful. And you can see some descriptions of this palette. I mean, it was opulent, and it was ostentatious. This was just a fantastic place. And you can imagine them just wanting to come there and and to have that great party. Uh, and, And it says the drink was in abundance. You'll see that this king has a a liking for booze. He really has. He's a party animal. You'll see that too. By the way, do you know that last year, the Houses of Common, the seat of our British government, that 1.8 million pounds was spent on booze? (laughs) Can you imagine that? Is it any wonder they're getting things wrong? And so, verse 9. Queen Vashti made a feast for the woman in the royal palace which belonged to King Ahasuerus. So she's whining and dining all these noblemens and lords and leaders. She's whining and dining their wives. She has got her own place. And you can imagine that would be a great party also. And on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, euphemistically speaking, that is. In other words, <laughs> he was well-oiled. He was half-cut, as we would say. He commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zithar, and Carcass, seven eunuchs, who served in the presence of the king at Hasereus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown, in order to show her beauty to the people and, of the, and, and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold." Now, you can imagine that she was beautiful to behold, because he had the pick of anybody he wanted. And he was going to pick the best. But the word goes out that he wants her to come and show herself with her crown to all his officials. And this woman, you'll see in a moment, had a lot of courage, a lot of guts because she refuses. And to dare to refuse anything the king requested was a very dangerous thing to do. Because this king, and I'm sure she knows this and has seen this in her lifetime, this king could have you execute it in the blink of an eye and wouldn't even give it a thought. So, the question is, why... Why is she refusing to come? Now the Targum, uh, which is Aramaic expansions and insights into the Hebrew scriptures that are oral and spoken by the rabbis, the Targum implies, and this could be true, that he just didn't want her to come in clothed with her crown. But to be completely unclothed, wearing only her crown. It had to be something drastic for her to refuse. And even though she was a pagan, at least she had some sense of morality and decency where she was not going to go in in front of that crowd of leering, lecherous, drunken men to ogle at her. She put her foot down and said, No, one commentator says this was the beginning of women's lib. But I don't know whether it was or not. <laughs> but anyway, listen to what happens. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner toward all who knew law and justice. Those closest to him being Karshana, and Shetar, and Amadtha, and Tarshish, and Merez, and Marsena, and Mimukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media. This was his privy council, as it were, these were his top advisors. Who had access to the king's presence and he ranked highest in the kingdom what shall we do to queen Vashti according to the law because she did not obey the command of king Ahasuerus, brought to her by the eunuchs this man had a massive eagle and he's highly embarrassed and his eagle he has to deal with this. He can't just let this slide. So he wants advice. What am I going to do? And Bimukan answered before the king and his princes, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. All, All their wives were in the other room when she's refusing. For the king's behavior will become known to all the women so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes when they report King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vastai to be brought in before him, but she did not come this very day the noble ladies of Persian media will say to the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen thus there will be excessive contempt and wrath if it pleases the king let a royal decree go out before him, from him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Medes and the Persians so that it will not be altered that Vashti shall come no more before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she And when the king's decree which he will make is proclaimed throughout all his empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. Really? (laughs) They're going to make a law that every wife will have to obey their husbands. (laughs) Ah, I wonder how that worked. I wonder how that turned out. But that's what they're going to do. And the reply pleased the king and the princess and the king did according to the words of Mimukan. Then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in its own script, to every people in their own language, that each man should be master in his own house and speak the language of his own people. Now, isn't it interesting? Here's an ancient king making rules and laws to govern families. Does that sound familiar? Here we are in the 21st century, and we have governs, governments making laws on how families should be ruled. Nothing much has changed, sure it hasn't. Now, this is all in the providence of God. The fact that this woman refused, even though she was a pagan, she had some decency. Not like some of the so-called celebrities today who would strip of a drop of a hat if they thought it would get them on the front page of the paper. At least she had some morality. But all of this was in the providence of God to bring about his purposes. God can use anybody to bring about his purposes. Even pagans and even pagan kings. Now, between chapter 1 and chapter 2, three years have elapsed, in which time he attacked Greece and was soundly defeated, like his father before him. And so he's back in his kingdom again. And after these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Now, he's he's lost his war that he wanted to win. He's lost his wife. He's not in a good mood. And despots who are in a bad mood are dangerous people. And those counselors around him knew that. They didn't want him to be in a bad mood for any reason. Because if he was in a bad mood, then any move they made could be a wrong one. It would be off of their heads. Verse 2. Then the king's servants who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan the citadel into the woman's quarters under the custody of, of of Hagia. Then the king's eunuch, custodian of the woman, and let beauty preparations be given them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. The thing pleased the king and he did so. In Shushan the citadel there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish a Benjamite. And Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem and the captives who had been captured with Jeconiah king of Judah whom Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon had carried away. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is, Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother, and the young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. And so it was when the king's command and decree was, were heard, and when many young women were gathered at Shushan, the citadel, under the custody of Hegai, that Esther also was taken to the king's palace into the care of Hegai, the custodian of the woman." Now the word went out and his men scarred all of the 127 provinces and brought back all of the beautiful women they could find. And woe betide them if they refused. And so they brought them all back for a beauty contest. And he was the only judge. But little did he know, little did Mordecai know, little did Esther know but God knew that the one he would choose was right there under his own nose in his own backyard this is the providence of God out of all the hundreds that was gathered the one that would be chosen was right there in his own city now verse 9 now the young woman pleased him that's Haggai the eunuch. and she obtained his favor. You're going to see her getting favor several times. And so he readily gave beauty preparations for her besides her alliance. Then seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace, and he moved her into the maidservants, moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the woman. And so here she is. We don't know how she ended up in this beauty parade. Uh, It's doubtful whether she volunteered, but maybe Mordecai maybe sought her and pushed her forward. Or maybe his men, the king's men, maybe saw her in the streets and thought, wow, she's beautiful. Let's scoop her up and put her before the king also. But here she is. She's got all these beauty preparations, and she finds favor with this eunuch who moves her into special quarters. Uh, You know, God has ways of giving his people favor. Joseph, found f- the slave, found favor with Potiphar. He found slave with a jailer. And then he found slave with a pharaoh. God has ways of finding favor for us in our lives in his providence. Amen. He can move us into the right position. He can get right people to cross our path. Amen. And you can see that happening here in this story. Verse 10, Esther had not revealed her people or family for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. In other words, don't let them know you're a Jew. Why would he do that? Because he realized in this vast kingdom, there were still those who would be anti-Semitic. It really never goes away. It's always been there and always will be there. And every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the woman's quarters because he couldn't go in to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. Each of the young woman's turn came to go in to King Ahasuerus after he had completed 12 months' preparation according to the regulations for the woman. For thus were the days of their preparation appointed, uh, uh, apportioned, six months of oil of myrrh, six months of perfumes and preparations for beautifying women. <laughs> thus prepared, each young woman went to the king and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the woman's quarters to the king's palace. And in the evening she went in, and in the morning she returned to the second house of, of the woman to the custody, custody of Shazgaz. And so here she is, and she, all these women got a full year's beauty treatment. Can you imagine that? A full year of treatment just before they can appear before the king. And they were really the most beautiful in the land. So you can imagine before they appeared before him, did you notice how they went in at night and they came back in the morning? I don't have to tell you what happened there. This is the equivalent to Hollywood's casting couch. Enough said about that. And after they went in to the king and come out again, then notice that it went to this other eunuch's quarters. And that's where the king's concubines were, and he had loads of them. Solomon, by the way, had seven hundred wives, three hundred concubines, he had a thousand women that still didn't please him. And it says uh, she would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her and called for her by name. So whenever the end of the king went from that straight to the concubines. If he didn't choose them to be queen, then straight to the concubine's quarters. And only then, when he would choose to pick one of them for whatever he needed, then he would call for them. Otherwise, they were there, listened to it for the rest of their lives. So any young woman who had any desire to find a fine young man and get married and have kids someday, that was gone forever. They would never be allowed out of this until the king died at least, or they died. They'd never be allowed back to their homeland. They'd never see their family again. And so even though they were having all these beautifications and all these beautiful quarters and living in this beautiful quarter of a palace, but their lives were not good. It was not good for them. So whenever Esther is put forward, I mean, if Mordecai was the one who put her forward, he's taking a massive risk here because if this doesn't work out, he'll never see her again. She'll never, ever... Be allowed out of the concubine's quarters unless the king sends for it. So, this is a big, big risk that's been taken. Now, the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter to go into the king. She requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the woman, advised. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to the king Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month which is the month of Tebeth in the seventh year of his reign from from the third year to the seventh year the king loved Esther more than all the other women and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins again God's providence so he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti then the king made a great feast the feast of Esther for all his officials and servants and he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of a king when the virgins were gathered together a second time so he's not looking for a queen this time he's got one but he's just looking for more for his harem he's looking more concubines when virgins were gathered together a second time and Mordecai sat within the king's gate. Now Esther had not revealed her family and her people just as Mordecai had charged her, for Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when she was brought up by him. In those days when Mordecai sat in the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthan and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. In other words, they conspired to assassinate him. That's what that literally means. For whatever reason, we don't know. There's some political intrigue going on, as always there is even today. And so the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther. And Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. So she met immediately the king and says, hey... Mordecai, who sits at your gate, found out about this conspiracy that two men that wanted to assassinate you. And she made sure that she mentioned his name. Not, she didn't say, I've done this, but he has done this. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both were hanged on a gallows. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now that little line there, it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king is absolutely vitally important to this story sometimes you read these little things and it's like a throwaway line but every word is inspired by the Holy Spirit and this is also to show us later on we'll see the providence of God it had to be written in the chronicles of the king and after these things do you know what? I would love to go into chapter 3 and continue I would really love to but I'm not going to and I tell you why because if I start it I have to finish it (laughs) and I can't finish it this morning so I'm going to have to leave you hanging but that's all right; you can come back tonight I'll not object to that let me tell you something see tonight this is the best part and it's so funny, actually. When I read these, sometimes I laugh out loud. It's literally so funny, the things that God gets up to against these enemies. It really is. It's a wonderful, wonderful story. But you know, God has delivered his people several times. Do you remember Egypt? And how God delivered them with great signs and wonders. Do you remember how he brought those ten plagues? And how he led the people out? Uh, into the desert and I took care of them a great pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night and how he led them led them over the Red Sea and opened up the Red Sea before them. and how he got water out of flinty rock that slaked the thirst of two million people and how he gave them manna angels food from heaven it says in the Psalms he gave them that in the wilderness he delivered them with signs and with wonders but you don't find that in the book of Esther no, no. He delivers them with providence. Not with spectacular signs and wonders, but by quietly moving behind the scenes. Like a great chess player moving the pieces until his enemies are trapped. The reason why I say that to you is because oftentimes we, we want God to do want an angel to appear or something spectacular to happen. And sometimes God will do the spectacular and the miraculous. And thank God he does. But more often than not, he's working behind the scenes quietly, moving things to favor us, to bless us in his providence. And so this is a story of God's providence that we need to be encouraged by, to take to heart and say, well, God, if you do that for them, you can do that for me. And he is doing it for us. Only often we only see it when we look back in our lives and say, that was God. That was the hand of God. That's how God did it. Sometimes it's hard to see looking ahead how he's going to do it. But we see looking back. Thank you for listening to this podcast.